0: Since 1971, Beauty O Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family owned and operated mail order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for, and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am Nate Swick. We had some big news here at the ABA last week. I of course am referring to the resignation of Jeff Gordon from the position of ABA president and I guess executive producer of this podcast too, though that's obviously the lesser title. If you are a regular listener of this podcast, you've heard Jeff here before. In fact, the podcast itself and my involvement in it was largely due to him so i thank him for that if you are old enough or well steeped enough in aba lore to remember when jeff gordon came on you'll remember that the aba was in a very bad way at the time the organization was wobbling as close to its end as it ever has been jeff's appointment to the position of president captain of this listing ship (laughs) haha Lent instant credibility to an organization that desperately, desperately needed it. And over the last 11 or so years, the ABA has really come into its own. Definitely more public, more accessible, more involved in promoting every part of the birding community. If you're listening, Jeff, we, we thank you for your hard work and wish you well as you move on to other things, most of which will probably involve birding in some way, though without the added stress of running a nonprofit. That responsibility... At least in the interim, goes to board chair Julie Davis while we search for a new president. If you're interested, stay tuned. In other ABA news, if you're in the Philly area this weekend, please come by Triple Bottom Brewing for our Bird of the Year reveal party on Sunday afternoon, December 19th, that is. You can get information and tickets at aba.org. If you cannot come, we will be streaming the reveal live on our various social media platforms, so check those out. We should have stuff ready to go from that end uh, by the end of the week. Fingers crossed. On the show today, new tanager just dropped. The story of the NT tanager from the perspective of one of the researchers who did surveys of the bird on its recently discovered breeding range in Western Bolivia, Ryan Terrell of the Moore Lab of Zoology at Occidental College, talks about the process of bringing a new species into the world. Not the evolutionary process, more the human side of the whole thing, but it's still cool. All that after this week's Redbirds. This is your rare bird Focus for the middle of December 2021. Score another one for the Patagonia picnic table effect. The site in Eddy County, New Mexico, where that state's first record of blue mockingbird was discovered last month, continues to turn up great birds, including, recently, another state first for New Mexico, a Nuttings flycatcher, one of the Sandy brown with various amounts of yellow on the belly. Myarchus flycatchers was discovered there in late November and finally conclusively identified this week. Nutting's flycatcher has been most commonly seen in the ABA area in western Arizona, as many birders have observed an individual near Lake Havasu that has been present for many years. This species has also been recorded in California and Texas. And up to British Columbia, where a red-shouldered hawk and Agassiz, is a provincial first. The western elegans subspecies has been creeping northward for many years, becoming fairly regular in northwest Washington, coming very close to the BC border in the past. But this nicely photographed individual represents the first confirmed record, depending on how birders interpret a couple previous site records. And in just under the wire, I feel like I'm burying the lead a little bit. But nonetheless, a bat falcon was seen this week at Benson Rio Grande Valley State Park in Hidalgo County, Texas. This would be a first ABA area record, though not an entirely unexpected one. Bat falcon is fairly common and widespread throughout the American tropics from northern Mexico all the way to northern Argentina. And in fact, has been recorded as close to the U.S. as Monterey in Nueva León, only about 140 miles south of the border, so pretty much nothing as the falcon flies. Those are the highlights in the rare bird world this week. If you want the entire roundout, check out the rare bird alert on Fridays at aba.org RBA, or to get those rarities as soon as they happen, join our ABA rare bird alert group on Facebook. It is one of the great dreams of many birders to be part of the discovery and description of a bird species that is brand new to science, but it is a process that can be long and involved. We got to see a little bit of that with around, around the recent official announcement of the Inti Tanager, known for a long time as the Killbill Tanager. My guest, Ryan Terrell, was involved in the work around this new species. He is an ornithologist at the Moore Lab of Zoology at Occidental College in LA. He was one of the authors of the paper officially announcing the bird Welcome, Brian, and congratulations!
1: Hey, Nate. Thank you so much. Appreciate it.
0: Yeah. Uh, so this this was all really cool. Not only the discovery of the bird, but just the fact that it is this really awesome, yellow, flashy-looking tropical tanager, which isn't maybe all we expect uh, new discoveries to be. I think a lot of birders are very used to when we when we get a new bird species that's like a split from some other bird that we already sort of knew. But this was completely completely different, right? Totally. Yeah.
1: You got that exactly, right? The vast majority of new stuff is, you know, either, you know, some variation that we didn't know about that got split or something that was known Mm -hmm. about for a long time that we just, you know, learned or realized or got evidence that, uh, you know, it probably is a different species.
0: Can can you talk a little bit about the, the timeline from, you know, quote unquote discovery? To the official announcement it's been it's been something like 20 years making this species official
1: yeah it's been right around 20 years so the first time that it was that dan and gary saw this bird in peru was i think in 2000 so uh mm-hmm. yeah to kind of give a, a compressed timeline they saw this bird in 2000 and then again i think 2001 2002 or so in peru and then it was seen off and on by tour, you know once they get an idea of where this bird was, a couple mm-hmm. tour groups had seen it and a few people, you know, a few guides, a few tour groups had seen it off and on through the 2000s. And then I think it was 20, uh, maybe like 2009, 2010, that this bird was discovered breeding in Bolivia um, by Frank Ryan, one of our colleagues, who's now a professor at the University of Singapore. Um, and I think it was, if I have it right, 2011 and 2012, that we were able to go in. And uh, and researched this bird in Bolivia, and then it was until now, you know, this year basically that the that the final publication came out. So yeah, it was about it's about yeah. ten years from first find from Dan and Gary first finding this bird to us finding the breeding population and finding you know numbers of these birds, and then another about ten years for the publication to actually come out.
0: So it t- it takes a while. It takes a while to sort of birth a new species, I guess, for the yeah.
1: better word. And it all I mean, it all depends. Some stuff goes a lot faster, you know, the that new ant bird in, in Peru, um, and Plataforma area, you know, that was a much quicker process. And so mm. it, it depends a lot on you know, especially like local local stuff and permits and politics and all you know, because especially it's something like you know, big and splashy, like a new bird, like a new genus of bird, just everything, yeah. you know, everything right. needs to be kind of as perfect as possible. And we have a, right. a lot of considerations for us, but also our colleagues in, uh, in Bolivia. And, you know, part of what was going on was there was a lot of political stuff going on, you know, like the government of Bolivia changed hands violently right. twice I in that period. It, yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. and uh, you know, so getting permits and who they're from and where it came from, you know, was uh basically it took time to get it right and we wanted to make sure it was absolutely right, especially for our colleagues in Bolivia, yeah. you
0: know. Dan Lane and Gary Rosenberg, you know, might have been the first two to tune that we know of to lay eyes on the bird itself. Mm-hmm. Um, when did you come into the story and what interested you the most about it all?
1: So when the bird was found in Bolivia, um when mm-hmm. Frank Wright was down there just on a birding trip looking for Ashy Ant wrens. <laughs> um this, it's a cool so actually an is this kind of endemic to this little area it's a really cool area this dry forest it has all sorts of other you know goodies that people green capped tanager you know that tom Schulmer discovered in the late 80s is actually pretty easy there connecticut warbler. i know this is now we asked me to go on a bit of a tangent but you know like we had <laughs> no 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 please our first trip there in one morning we had more connecticut warblers than had Ever been seen in South America? Put together, you know, like it, it's a bird that like disappears in the winter. You know, there are like
0: yeah five right. or six
1: records from South America, even though we know they probably winter in South America. And uh, and of course, Dan knew it by like the flight call. He's like, oh, I think that's probably connected. <laughs> but uh, once we've realized they were there, they were there, we had like a dozen in the morning. You know, which is like almost twice as many. As we... Anyway, so it's like a really cool, unique, distinct area. So Frank had been mm-hmm. there looking for at Rens and a few other things like found this thing breeding and got in touch with Dan because he knew, you know, he kind of had known the story from the right. zeitgeist, basically, that...
0: And they were they were looking for this bird.
1: Exactly. And so he got yeah. in touch with us, and I was doing work in Bolivia at the time. In fact, at LSU, I was kind of the only person, you know, doing work in Bolivia. I was kind of the only, you know, U.S. researcher doing Bolivia. Doing work in Bolivia at the time, so they contacted me, um, to kind of plan a trip down there because I had the contacts and and the mm-hmm. permits and was collaborating with a museum in Bolivia called uh, Museum of Natural History Noel Kemp Mercado in, in Santa Cruz. We have a like an interinstitutional agreement, or at least we did with that museum, so that basically we can right. work with their permits and we share, you know, you know, we bring down funds and share that with them, and then we, we share resources and data and everything
0: like that. What is it? What was it like going into this? this place, this part of Bolivia that is already, you know, fairly well known or is it?
1: Well, first of all, it's super cool. Um, Second of all, not particularly well known. So, so the setup is, you know, the East side of the Andes, especially on the Bolivia, Peru border is super humid and super diverse. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's about the high, you know, the, the highest point of bird diversity in the world is like that. Yeah, I,
0: I, you know, I've seen in the last few years Bolivia becoming a very popular destination for international birders, largely because of that. I think it's been sort of under undervalued for a very long time, and now it's starting to come into its own a little bit.
1: Totally, yeah, and I love Bolivia. Yeah. And somebody who's grown up in California, Bolivia reminds me of California a little bit because oh, really? you can get to, like, really different habitats. These dry valleys, deserts, like, super humid mm-hmm. montane forests. There's Amazonia, you know, which is, like, being here in California and go to like, Oak, Montane, Chaparral, Desert, you yeah. know, in like a really short amount of time and, and just so different, different cohorts like, of birds
0: at every single, every oh, single yeah. spot. Yeah, like yeah. from Santa
1: Cruz or really Cochabamba, you can be in, you know, within a one and a half to two hour drive in any direction. There's like six different, you know, completely different eco zones yeah, you can probably, yeah. huh. But um, this part near the borders, like, is superhuman. There's a lot of humid Andean forest that transitions into typical Amazonian mm-hmm. forest. But there are these rain shadow valleys um, that are, as you go farther south, you know, into Bolivia and Argentina, they get more bigger and bigger and then kind of take over. And by the time you get into Argentina, northwest Argentina, it's mostly dry forest with, you know, these ridges that are more humid. And then as you go farther and farther north, it sort of transitions into less and less dry valley and more and more mm-hmm. humid. By the time you get into Peru, there's only a couple small dry valleys that are basically rain shadow valleys. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And so in farther south in Bolivia, there's a whole system of these dry valleys that a bunch of birds are endemic to, like Red Front and Macaw is endemic to this dry valley system. Um, so as you as you go farther north, they get smaller and fewer and farther between. And so this okay. valley um, that the city of Apollo is in is actually kind of the most open and dry of them all. It, it's a it's a big valley that's flat and and it's basically just open grassland with some trees and stuff and there's like burrowing owls all over the place and everything. Hmm. And it is probably that open because it has been historically maintained by fire and grazing for okay. um, for livestock, but probably, you know, prehistorically too. Like it, it's been yeah. a it's probably been like dry forest of some sort, or pretty dry for a really long yeah. time. But then you know the, the people who live there have had a really long time ago, kind of opened it up, probably with fire. Yeah, and
0: like a regular and fire like regimen. Yeah,
1: and that's, that's where like the Bolivian swallowtail cotinga is, um, is basically endemic to there. Um, but and that's kind of open grassland. It's a really cool spot, but. And, and that's easy to get to. You can take a bus there from La Paz, even though it's like a 20-something mm-hmm. hour bus ride. You know, it's it's a long bus ride. And the only place to stay is a is a monastery, which is pretty fun. It's like <laughs> the nuns are, you know, no matter how early you go birding, the nuns are up before you, and they have, like, fresh <laughs> bread that they already baked and, like, fresh jam. And so it was pretty funny. A lot of traveling in South America, like, you know, a lot of times the food's good, but when you're somewhere really remote, you know, there's not much. And so, like, yeah, especially right. in the field and somewhere remote, you're used to just kind of eating, like, you know, tune out of a tan or something like that. And he's just at this <laughs> monastery and they're like, Oh yeah, we got up at
0: rolling out the red carpet." Yeah. We heard you were
1: leaving at four 30 in the morning. So we got up at two and baked you all this fresh bread and here's the honey <laughs> from our bees and stuff like that. It's pretty funny, especially that remote, but where this tanager is, is not in that open grassy mm-hmm. area. It's in a, it's in like true dry forest Valley that's below, um, it's kind of downslope and North of the, the grasslands, the Apollo grasslands. And, it is actually, it's not very well known at all. Even Apollo, like as as um, well, uh, as easy it is, as relatively easy as it is to get to, is, you know, there's not been a ton of work there. There is the, mm-hmm. you know, Armonia is managing a small-tailed Cotingus there and they have a couple small projects there. Um, but as far as like general surveys in the area, there, ha- there hasn't been a ton. But in this valley, the Matariapa Valley, which is even below there a couple hours, there have really only been two, expeditions there like two trips by by mm-hmm. western scientists and they're both in the dry season so mark pierman had been there in i think the 80s or early 90s Oh, yeah. he was more, the one that may have seen it uh-huh. the very
0: first time when he drew a picture of it yeah uh-huh.
1: and uh <laughs> even ted parker had been there um i yeah. think in the 80s but the thing is they had both been there during the dry season um mm-hmm. because that's when it's easy to get in and and the road going into there crosses a, r- a riverbed that you can't drive through in the wet season. You could hike through it, but it would be like, you know, it's white water. It would be tough, to kind of swim yeah. across and get your bags and then a few more miles. And so it's just, you know, it had never really been worth it for anybody to try to go in during the wet season. Um, and so Frank had been there and the only time he could go was kind of right at the beginning of the wet season. He was able to get in and out. And it turns out, you know, the crazy thing about this bird and, you know, something we mentioned in publication is that it appears to be migratory, and it's only mm-hmm. there during the wet season and so even though like
0: all the other expeditions missed it. Totally and like Ted yeah.
1: Parker like if that thing was there especially if it was singing or yeah. making any noise same with Mark Kierman, like would have mm-hmm. found it but uh it just wasn't there during the dry season and so when we went there we were able to go kind of right at the beginning of the wet season we had a big four wheel drive van with like a snorkel so we could get in and out mm-hmm. um, but even then we had to kind of time the timing and the rain and stuff so that we could we wouldn't get stuck in there um but yeah you get in there and again it's like you're used to being on a thousand meters on the east side of andes and it's like super humid but it's just like this gorgeous dry forest with these big emergent cardone cacti that are like you know the tallest vegetation in the forest you know the mm. canopy is like 20, thirty feet then you have these like 50 foot cacti sticking up out of mm. them and bamboo and stuff and there's a lot of north american migrants in there which is cool too because bolivia is far south enough that you don't get a ton of North right. American migrants, right. you know, like yeah, like if you're up in Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, like you're seeing stuff all over the Black place. Blackburnian
0: warbler, Cerulean warbler, stuff like that. Totally, know? exactly, and like Canada yeah.
1: warbler and stuff, and mm-hmm. that all that stuff gets pretty rare, which is why like the Connecticut warbler give us Zeep as it yeah. flew in. We're like, oh, that's like a a migrant warbler, like maybe it's Blackburnian or Canada or something. Mm-hmm. Like, let's check it out, and it was Connecticut. But even in there, like it's such as Scarlet Tanders, Eastern Wood Peewees, Western Wood pee's. Um also flycatchers like super thick in there, like more huh. than I've seen other places. And I wonder if it's maybe because uh, it's a little more depauperate diversity wise compared to the um, humid forest, There's so uh, there's a little less competition or something. But... There's
0: more niches available for North American birds than I the guess, but, yeah, they really yeah. pack in there. And in, in fact we huh. had a
1: black billed cuckoo in there. Which, speaking huh. of another bird that just disappears in the winter, you know, there's yeah. very few records of blackbird cuckoos on the winter range, and we had one in there too. So maybe it's an important spot for them too. So it's a super cool spot. And hmm. also, like ground cuckoos, that was the most abundant I've ever had Rufus a ground cuckoo. We had them like every day in there. Uh, it was super cool. But anyway, so yeah, we got down into this, this dry valley that, again, People have been there during the dry season, but the tanger seems to only be there during the humid season when they're breeding. And when they're actually there, they're like pretty thick, you know, they're pretty common. <laughs> which is pretty funny. And and we didn't realize that we were there the first trip we were there right when they were arriving. So we got there mm-hmm. and, you know, we didn't have any and spent the whole day walking around and went to these ridge tops of you know, the kind of ridges coming down the valleys, and right on the ridge tops, you know, we had one or two so excited we're like oh my god there it is it's awesome and then like as the days kept going and they kept <laughs> arriving it was just like cuz we were like okay they must be on the ridge tops like go find right. the ridge tops like that's the only spot they are it's like they must be like endemic to this really specific ha- ridge top habitat <laughs> and i was like it's, which is turns probably, out they're just yeah and they seem to be most abundant on ridge tops but as they filled yeah. in it was like and by the last day i think we were there you know played some playback to see if I was in the territory of one and like three males all came in and started <laughs> fighting and stuff. And, uh, even as we are leaving, you know, we're going back up into the grasslands. And as you can imagine, the nice tall, beautiful dry forest kind of gets shorter and shorter and more stunted as you go back up into the grasslands. Mm-hmm. We got out, uh, you know, like one of the last stops on the way back, we just got out to bird. I think there's a couple other cool, but po- there's like a population of black belly in there, which is, is basically an Eastern Brazil bird. And it's like, thousand kilometers from the closest population so we were also checking them out and uh i think that was what we got out to look at or something else and we heard an ninty just and it was like the habitat was like trash you know and we heard ninty tander yeah. jesus and so we played back and a male and female came in so it's like it's a it's a fairly small area but but they're like pretty fairly packed in there which really surprised yeah. us and was really cool
0: I mean, there's just so many little surprising angles of this. Not only the fact that this part where they're breeding, where they're so relatively dense, is uh, the place that people weren't able to get to except in a certain time of year when they're not there, but also that, you know, it wasn't necessarily discovered first at this out of the way place in the Amazon. It was sort of at the, one of the most highly trafficked hotspots in South America, you know, Manu Road in, in Peru. You know, why do you think it was overlooked there for so long?
1: I think it's because they're on their non breeding range and birds yeah. are, you know, they're even though there's, yeah. yeah, even though they are quite a bit in these, this valley, they disperse probably in a much larger and they their non breeding mm-hmm. range and they could be harder to see. Like, you know, take, for example, Connecticut warbler, like we were talking mm-hmm. about. How many, how mm-hmm. many Connecticut warblers have people seen on the breeding range migration? You know, thousands, thousands, and thousands. But on the like winter range, Maybe twenty total Connecticut warblers have ever been seen. Same with black-billed cuckoo. Like, think about how many thousands black-billed cuckoos people have seen on or near the breeding range, and maybe a handful, maybe a half dozen have ever yeah. been seen on the winter range. And so, yeah, I, I think that had to do with why it was so so tough in Peru. Is you know they found one that had been wintering in the area, um, but right. it's, they're yeah few and far between. They're spread out over an area over a big area, and they're not defending territories. They may or may not be joining mixed flocks. And it's a well-trafficked area, but it's, you know, it's one road, one small road that cuts through an incredibly vast uh, yeah. system of, of human force. And like, so if you're just lucky to be on that tiny little spot when the bird's coming the through where it is, yeah. Then, yeah. Then, you're, then you're lucky. But like, it's a well-birded spot, but even just a little bit, you know, in either direction can often be yeah. included. I mean, one thing that I think... It, it's hard to appreciate about things about like Amazonia and the low and East Andes. When you're flying over it, it looks like a carpet of green, and it looks all the same. Um, mm-hmm. But the more time you spend in that kind of habitat, the more time you realize that really small changes in things like soil type or vegetation, even over fairly small areas, can have kind of a drastic effect on the bird life. Like you can, mm-hmm. you know, you hike a couple miles in the Amazon again; it all looks the same. But you can get spots where like all of a sudden the birds are pretty different. And maybe it's like yeah. a little closer to a floodplain or maybe it's part of a floodplain or maybe it's, you know, um, maybe there's some deciduous component to the forest or something. And and um, yeah, kind of the bird composition can actually change quite a lot over seemingly homogenous habitat. And so, hmm. yeah, that road is is well birded, but that doesn't mean that area is well known. At all, if that makes sense, it's just kind of this little sliver of understanding in a in a sea of (laughs) diversity.
0: Yeah, it's almost like a terrestrial pelagic. You know, you're on a little boat in the middle of of a big ocean, and you're kind of lucky if a bird intersects with you, uh, because there are myriad ways in which they wouldn't. That's exactly right. Because you're looking the wrong direction, or you're heading the wrong angle, or the wrong bearing, or whatever. That's
1: exactly right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: What are the cooler angles of all this is the way that, you know, birders and professional ornithologists kind of work together to find and describe this bird. Is that a pretty common way that things work in the tropics? Mm, I'd say it has
1: been, Um, you know, like, again, the platform ant bird was discovered by a birder just birding. And the group of us that worked on this bird are all, you know, super hardcore birders as well.
0: As well as ornithologists. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know,
1: not everybody is. Not every bird is an ornithologist. Not every ornithologist is a birder. But I think that mm-hmm. this type of research that we're doing, like natural history, especially in the neotropics, trying to get to poorly known areas and describe diversity or find new diversity or, you know, learn about natural history of birds. I think, I think most of that stuff is spearheaded by ornithologists who have a, you know, either a background or strong base or strong interest in birding.
0: Yeah. Um, and so yeah,
1: it's it's not just collaboration between bird, birders and ornithologists, but also work by people that are are both right. people have, and
0: have, yeah. have feet in both worlds. Exactly, yeah, and I you know I always
1: think it's kind of a good thing. I always try to encourage you know my ornithologist friends to come out and bird or whatever, and I <laughs> try to encourage my birding friends to you know send them papers for read or whatever. You know, I think yeah. there's a lot of uh, mutual benefit that both worlds can get from each other.
0: Yeah, for sure. It is neat how birding is one of the, or ornithology is one of the few like hard sciences in which there is a real strong amateur uh, component. Um, I don't know that there are too many sciences like that.
1: Absolutely. You know, like herpetology, it's funny yeah. that, you know, they're kind of are, but they're, they're different in their own ways. You know, like herpetology, mm-hmm. they have to deal with a lot of the amateurs that are out there are there to Basically, you know, keep animals as pets and like the laws right, are so different. Yeah. It's like you can yeah. you can never just go grab a bird and like keep it in your basement. But like, <laughs> you know, herpetologists that I know of, you know, have to basically, you know, like eBird, you know, if we discover a spot, you know, we publicize it and we're like, oh, here's some cool bird, here's some cool diversity or whatever. Or it's herpetologists, mm-hmm. it's like often they have to keep stuff secret. Cause right, yeah, They no, find I a cool snake, good. somebody's just going to go take it and put it in a Tupperware in their garage and that's like perfectly legal. And then... <laughs> You know, like I also have friends who are ecologists, and they have to deal with you know if they like lump of species. There's all these the majority of people who are interested in fish diversity or are, are like in the you know like pet fish trade or something. So if they right. lump of species, people are like, no, that's different. You know, I you know because now they can't sell it for as much or whatever. <laughs> or uh, sorry if I'm going on, but like you know yeah. people who do you know like mycologists. I know people who are mycologists, and again, like you find some interesting patch of of mushrooms or something, people are gonna wanna go harvest it for food or yeah. you know, they wanna know if it's uh, psychoactive or something. And so like <laughs> it, a lot of the ologies do have pretty active amateur uh
0: I don't components. Know. Yeah, yeah,
1: components or, or cultures yeah. or whatever. But yeah. they can often be fairly different. And not that though each one of those groups I just talked about do also really have like an active natural history focused amateur mm-hmm. component that is very much like birding but most of them also have kind of other things yeah, like that a consumptive
0: have to angle or a yeah, yeah. Or a commercial angle yeah. yeah although and bird i guess bird collecting is that does have that but it's usually not the birders that are doing that it's a whole different cage bird trade that is sometimes you know uh at odds with with birds yeah, yeah. and there yeah
1: there is that component which isn't something i've really dealt with much or thought of much but it isn't certainly a thing um especially yeah. internationally you know it's not yeah
0: and yes yeah. you don't have to
1: worry too much about the less movie. of a thing
0: yeah, yeah. the name in mm-hmm. tanager uh how did the working group come up with that what is that process like
1: so uh, it started you know with like conversations around the campfire just about the bird and throwing right. out names and stuff and
0: yeah so kill bill tanager not <laughs> one that was planning on sticking
1: <laughs> nah
0: nah it's a you dated. know
1: <laughs> yeah it's a little dated it's a little you know i think uh I always think pop culture references are fun in the moment, right? <laughs> you know, but they right. can get,
0: they don't last. Yeah. They're,
1: <laughs> they're, they're more ephemeral than, you know, we would like for, mm-hmm. for something like this. And um, anyway, so, so we were talking about the bird, you know, around campfire and stuff like that. And, you know, we thought maybe like Oriole Tanager might be a cool name mm-hmm. for it. Cause it looks a lot like an old world Oriole or, you know, thought about a few other things, but, You know, the some sort of play on sun tanager was something that we all kind of liked because, you know, look kind of looks like a little sun. It's like this golden yellow thing, but, you know, it's in a sunny habitat, like this Mm -hmm. open dry forest, which, you know, again, if you spend much time in the tropics, you know, no matter how hot and sunny it is, when you're in humid habitats, it's usually pretty dark and pretty shady, like you're in the Mm -hmm. understory, whereas in, in dry and deciduous habitats, it's a lot warmer and brighter and more sunny so it's kind of in the sunny habitat I like sing from the canopy it looks like a little sun it also sings later in the day so like oh yeah
0: okay you know
1: there's always this dawn chorus in the tropics and usually it dies down pretty early especially in dry forest when it gets hot it dies down really early but then these birds continue to sing and so like you know when you're walking back to camp at 9 9 30 10 in the morning basically it's just like easy tanagers and black captain prince singing like, huh. if you listen to a lot of my recordings i don't know if, i'll put more on. On Ebert and Macaulay, or you know, yeah. our recordings, a lot of times the only thing in the background is a black capped around because it's like 10 a.m. and those are the only things that are singing. Yeah, everything's um, shut down. So we all kind of like that. Uh, Heliothropus, which is the genus name, is a, you know kind of a I guess portmanteau between Greek and Latin. Helios, sun, and then thropis comes from Latin, which just kind of means a small bird, but it's generally used to mean a tanager in right. like current biological nomenclature. Um, and, and we, so we kind of liked that, or we did like that. We liked the idea of Heliothropus and then we're thinking of some sort of, you know, we, we even kind of thought Sun Tanager might be cool, but, um, after thinking about a number of things and settling and deciding on a number of things, Inky Tanager was something that came up because, um for a number of reasons, and a, and a number of reasons that I'm still kind of like understanding what's cool and interesting about it. But anyway, you know, Inti was was the sun god that was super important in, in uh, Quechua culture and, and the Incan culture, um, which was dominant in the area for a really short period of time. But oh, I'll get back to that in a second. But it's still their language, the Inca language, Quechua is still really broadly spoken throughout um, the South American Andes and really commonly spoken Specifically in the area where that bird is, it's
0: mm-hmm.
1: the second most common language, and there are even people you know. I've met people in the Andes who don't really speak Spanish; they mainly speak Quechua. But Inti not only means sun, but was the sun god, which was a super important figure in Quechua mm-hmm. culture. In fact, in a lot of the flags in South America, like the Argentine flag, you've seen that sun, yeah, in between yeah. The, the light, the you know, the Alba Celeste. Uh, that is that is Inti. That's the representation of okay. Inti from from Quechua right. culture, um, and so we, we like. We liked that. We thought it was cool. Um, we thought it, you know, in, in a lot of ways, you know, paid homage to the, the people who have been, who have lived there and do live there. Um, there's also a complicated history with that, with people being moved in and out of that area for a really yeah. long time, all the way back to the Incas and before the Incas, all the way through uh, modern times. You know, the Incan Empire, is, especially at, at its extent and where it was in through southern South America and Bolivia and stuff like that, lasted. Only hundred years um, hmm. lasted less, less than a hundred years, and so it was actually, you know, a fairly, fairly ephemeral um, or fairly short-lived um, outside of Cusco. You know, the Incas were in Cusco for a long time, but their their broad hmm. empire was incredibly short. However, they had a, a huge influence on culture and language of, of the regions. One of the things they did was they would like move people around who spoke different languages and make them live together, so that they had to speak Quechua. It was like oh, the only huh. way they could communicate, and that's one of the ways. They spread Quechua from Colombia to Argentina in, in less than 100 years, and it's still commonly spoken. It's, wow. it's really interesting history. But um, the word, word Inti actually comes to Quechua from the Pukina languages that are for, actually from that region in Bolivia oh, and, cool. and nearby Peru. And, and actually, Pukinas, Puk, the Pukina language group is still spoken a little bit in Bolivia today. So not only is Inti come from... Kind of the most common native language that's spoken in the Andes, that then also comes from the Pukina languages, which were from that area before the kind of you know colonization, yeah. imperial conquest, very brief imperial conquest of the, the Incan Empire. So, um, so that that's kind of cool too. So, yeah, yeah, it's cool. It's it.
0: I mean, it's just one. It's one of those names that sort of really splits the difference of being like really evocative uh, and just cool in that sense, and also you know very. Descriptive, we like descriptive names. We like names that sort of call back to the, the culture of the place where, where a bird is from. You know, obviously names are in the, you know, I think, you know, the bird community has been talking a lot about names in the last couple of years. And this is just like one, you have the opportunity to come up with a new name that kind of hits a lot of these issues that we've been talking about. And yeah, you know, I, I just think it's a really it's really nicely done. Thank so you, thank you. That. Appreciate <laughs>
1: that. Yeah, I agree, yeah. I, I like how it ended up.
0: Yeah, Um. So. so what do we still need to know about this bird?
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, there's, I mean, we still need to know a lot about a lot of birds. Um, That's
0: true. That's true. Yeah.
1: (laughs) It would, you know, it'd be good to get a better estimate of the population size. We tried to do some survey work, Mm -hmm. uh, in the area, um, you know, to the limited capacity. The year that we went down to try to do survey work, we really got rained out most of the time. Like I said, you gotta be there at
0: the Yeah, it's the wet, the wet season, season anyway. Yeah. And we had a like a week
1: or two that we had like a week and a half, maybe two weeks there and we could only get a couple days of, of work. Wow. you know, we we got an idea of again they're they're pretty dense and pretty abundant, but you know, more extensive surveys to try to figure out the population size. Or even, you know, genetic work, genomic work you can you can get an understanding of population size. Um but uh there's a lot, you know, for example, their diet, how closely they may or may not be associated with bamboo. Um, mm-hmm. The spot that this bird is seen in Peru is, is kind of known as a bamboo spot, and it's got some Guadua and, and other understory bamboos. And at least when we were our first year there, they were seeding Guadua bamboo. Um, but the birds weren't necessarily in it. Um, Dan had thought for a long time that maybe it had been associated with bamboo. So whether mm-hmm. or not it is associated with bamboo or seeding bamboo, um, is something we still don't know. Um, you know, what exactly its diet is, um, the migratory paths, like where, where it does and doesn't go, where else it may or may not breed. You know, we've been just, I told you there's kind of a whole system of dry valleys. Um, yeah, there's sure. kind of a gap from that dry valley to the next closest dry valley, which is called the Cotacajes Valley, which is also really poorly known. Um, but an expedition into the Cotacajes Valley a few years ago, before this bird was described, I sent them, you know, a, a track of, of its singing so they could play. Right. It. Um, and, and they didn't, they didn't have it in there, but, wow. but who knows? It could, could, could be in there. It could be in some other spots. Um, could
0: be something else.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. 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 In fact, I mean, there are a couple, there's at least one more undescribed taxon from the valley where the tanager is that we're working on. Really? I, I, I probably shouldn't and say that, but, um, <laughs> uh, mystery
0: bird. There's a mystery bird out there. It's probably, yeah, it's probably a subspecies. And then yeah.
1: there's another one from another spot in Bolivia that we're working on. And so there, there's mm-hmm. still, there's still plenty of stuff out there. There's a lot that, you know, clearly we need to, to learn about this bird and uh, a lot of the birds in that area, you know.
0: Yeah.
1: It's funny because this is a bird that was unknown until fairly recently, at least, to you know, unknown in the way that we would talk, you know, to uh, globally distributed science, right. I guess. Yeah. Um, and that's actually kind of an interesting topic too because, you know, there have been civilizations and cultures in that area for a really long time Right. Um, How
0: could they have missed it? <laughs> or they probably didn't. Right? No, and I'm, sure, I'm sure they knew about it.
1: But again, yeah. people have been moved around a lot. You know, they right. just moved people around and, and the current Bolivian government has been moving people around a lot. And a lot of the people in that area or close to that area have been moved there or have been given subsidies from the government to move there from higher up in the Andes. And So mm-hmm. a lot of the people that live in that region are not necessarily the people that, who have lived in that region for a long time. Right. So it would be also really interesting to talk to the people or get a sense of. Of, uh, you know, what the people's relationship has been with the, you know, cause clearly people know about the bird, but it's, it's, there aren't a lot of people living there now. And the people who are there now are, may or may not be people who've been there for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the bigger cultures, bigger pre Incan cultures, um, kind of collapsed before the Incan Empire too. And so they may have had a long, you know, they may have known the bird really well and we may have kind of lost that, um, yeah. Yeah. in some ways. But, um, Uh, My point was, you know, this is a bird that was kind of, you know, unknown to like globally distributed science until really recently. But, you know, the amount of work we've done on it just in the description now makes it like one of the better known (laughs) birds. You know, it's like in in this part of South America, especially, and so many birds are just so poorly known. It's like a bird Mm -hmm. that maybe field trips, you know, guided trips will see once or twice a year. And that's kind of it. Like, you know, there's so many birds that, don't get worked on, don't get much attention. You know, maybe we're described once in the 1800s and now we're seen once a year by a a Wings tour, you know, that like Brett Whitney points out to his clients and that's basically like the world knowledge of this bird. And So, Hmm. you know, there's so much of this stuff that we... We really need to learn a lot more
0: about it. Ryan Terrell is a bird researcher at the Moore Lab of Zoology in Occidental College in Los Angeles. He is one of the authors of the recent publication announcing the Inti Tanager. I'll have the link in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thank you so much for your time and uh, congratulations again. Such a cool bird, such a cool process.
1: Thank you, Nate. Really appreciate it.
0: The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. Support this podcast and all of our free resources for birders by supporting the ABA with your membership many benefits. You know what they are by now. Magazines, discounts to partners, opportunities to travel with us. ABA memberships also make great holiday gifts. If you're still looking for one, get information on that at ABA.org slash join. And I should say that we are also running our year-end appeal right now. If you want to throw us a few bucks to help support the organization, please consider doing so. You can take care of that at ABA.org slash gift. I have some shout-outs to make this week. Dana Ward of Portland, Oregon. Norwood Hall of poposki minnesota jaron rudd and leslie downs of gilbertsville kentucky dario teraborelli and family of san francisco california and larry nigro and family of fairfax california all of whom recently joined the aba and noted the podcast as a reason for doing so thank you all so much for that we really really do appreciate it technical production is by john lowry who was surprised that the inti tanager was not more closely related to the grass green tanager because you know, it's colloquially known as the minty tanager Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who note that the burnished buff tanager has a striking resemblance to a certain hostess sponge cake with creamy filling and thus should probably be called the Twinkie Tanager. You can find us online at aba.org and on social media. Most everywhere as American Birding Association, but also on Twitter as at ABA. Tanager phylogenetics is a total mess, as I'm sure you may know. In the last few years, we've learned that all those Technicolored, fancy, neotropical stunners are all actually closer related to Darwin finches, conebills, bills, grassquits, whole lot of dust-colored, dull birds that I've taken to calling linty tanagers. Questions, comments can come to podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Until next week.